Welcome to Turnpikers, the show about the people who make up the Denver and Boulder tech scene. We're your hosts, Luke Beatty and Danny Newman. Information about this show is available at turnpikers.com and at turnpikers on Twitter. All right, welcome to the latest episode of Turnpikers. We have the most successful businessman in Denver uh, on, <laughs> so on the show today. Uh, his name is Justin Anthony. And uh, welcome to the show, Justin. Thank you for the hyperbolic <laughs> intro. Yeah, it's true, though. Justin is, um, Justin is the most diversely successful person in Denver. He owns a lot of bars. People who listen to this podcast have filled your pockets with a lot of cold drinks over time. <laughs> You have had a very successful tech startup career. You're also sort of like a real estate mogul. Mogul. So, just <laughs> emperor, emperor. Yeah, yeah, prince. What? Uh, I've still wh- been wh- looking around to meet this person that you're yeah. describing. <laughs> Which of those businesses would you like to go over first, Mister Startup? Um, I don't know. I think uh, the startup stuff is really. Um, from an audience standpoint, might might be more interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think that's where actually Luke and I met, and uh, that was just I was actually doing nothing but nonprofit work. I'd come from the enterprise world where I was working um, directing the European operations of a logistics company. Didn't really know much about logistics, but had a knack for kind of bridging the gap between countries and doing integrations on a bigger scale. But I came up through tech, so I always had a soft spot for all things tech and got a call from uh, a guy that Luke also knows, Alan Shulman, a buddy of mine from Chicago, saying, hey, I want to start, you know, I want to start something up. I heard you know a lot about tech and let's get this going. And it was, he's a home builder of 25 years. I didn't know anything about how to own a home. I mean, if you asked me, someone came over and asked if I needed my ducks clean. One, I didn't know that I even had ducks. And then they're bringing like dead bodies out of it and stuff like that. So I've always been attracted to trying to leverage technology to make people's lives easier. And I was the perfect use case for Alan's idea. So it ended up working out. We were fortunate enough to have gotten accepted to 500 startups, which for me, was one of the most fascinating educational experiences of anything I've ever been through. I mean, we were the old guys in the room. Average age of our class was probably like 25, but we were constantly surrounded by just brilliant, crazy people that I think fueled us. I I don't think I ever could have picked things up as quickly as I did if it wasn't as a result of that incubator. And I know all incubators aren't alike, but I can say that what Dave McClure has created there is incredibly effective if you're willing to listen and don't come in there with an ego. Because if you think, like, we came in there, you know, enterprise experience, all this shit, over-engineering for If you swear again, we have, to, we have to put explicit okay, on the I'm iTunes. Sorry. So I'm just, sorry. just I will rein that in. Clean it up. <laughs> okay, sorry. <laughs> Please but continue. Over-architecting for improbable solutions was our biggest problem. Like, I come from the enterprise side, so I always wanted redundancy and we're going to be this big so let's build this database and it really held us back i mean we we made all the wrong moves that you know if i had a, a time machine we could go back and and change things but it ended up working out okay in the end when was that what uh, time period so i think we went in spring of 2011 is when we we went in um it was a it was a big grind it was really hard because i think anytime you select a company that is addressing a pain point that people don't necessarily feel acutely, 
you know, home maintenance is very episodic. No one really thinks about things until your furnace breaks, your house floods, as Luke just experienced recently. So I think why people were, why I was attracted to the idea is I loved the idea of making a lifestyle, like adding a lifestyle element to something that had always been a dude whose crack you could see or incredibly dry, mundane content that no one was engaging with. So if, when we looked at insurance companies and all the players in the field, even home, the Home Depots of the world, none of them are able to engage with their users outside of the typical, it's time to renew your dues or, oh crap, now you've got something broken, you've got to call a plumber or electrician or whatever. So I really loved the idea of kind of filling in those blanks because I didn't think anybody else was doing it well. Um, so, so for the listeners, w- tell us about what that business was called, what it was all about, how it worked, okay, and so how, that, that, how, that, how that went from beginning, middle, to end. Okay, so that in, ended in up— under, say, two and a half minutes. Yeah, so the, the auctioneer's version of it was, it was an online resource built to help homeowners take better care of their homes. Kind of the what, when, and how of home care. And the differentiator for us was content and putting a lifestyle brand— on a sector that really no one had ever done it before. And we were obsessed with content. The voice we chose, everything, like everything was custom tailored around the, the targets we were going after, which was basically, you know, when we did persona exercises and things like that, it was, you know, Lisa O'Connor, which actually happens to be a real person in Denver. I think you yes, know Lisa. Yeah, so I grew up Lisa with was her. basically our target customer. And we would just sit in these people's houses and find out like, what do you care about? What's important to you? And did a significant, I would say the product that was born out of that exercise was 50% from user input initially and 50% from observing user behavior when we put it out. So it ended up being a very highly customized kind of delivery mechanism and reminder system for homeowners. Apple ended up getting a really big kick out of it, tweeting out on their Apple account about an app we did, and it was our first app experience and that ended up doing really well for us. And then we started getting acquisition offers and started having you know, opportunities with larger insurance companies and things like that. And ultimately, we decided to sell to a company called Angie's List. And that, that uh, whole situation is a, probably a longer story for the podcast. I, I think Alan and I set out to create something from scratch with the intent of not creating something that was going to be a long-lasting business that our, you know, children would be able to inherit, but something that we could exit. I mean, we really went into it intentionally thinking we want to build this and eventually get out of this. How big were you guys at time of acquisition? Um, from a from employee standpoint? And from, yeah, and from user base. So I think our user base at the time of acquisition was roughly f- between four and 500,000. And I think our employee count was under 12. Like it hovered between that. But we had a content team of three people that were doing the work of, like, I remember Luke had introduced me to one of the executives at, H- or at AOL. And we were having a conversation about just content generation. And she's like, well, how, how big is your team? Because she was assuming it was 20 to 30 people. And we were, we had three people outputting some of the best content out there. And it really was when I kind of learned how critical content marketing was for growth, for establishing yourself as an expert in the arena that you're you're trying to. I mean, it's hard to get people to engage with it, but if you consistently create content, and one of the biggest keys to our success, I think, initially with audience building was 
who cares about us, this little lowly startup that's in a space that most people aren't paying attention to, but we piggybacked off of people that already had established reputations, even if they were tangential. So we would try to tie ourselves into trends like house and all the press they were getting because of the big budget they had and all the hiring they were doing. We would try to get ourselves as part of that conversation. But also, we just found who are the influencers in the space. Bob Vila was one of them. So we just started doing social partnerships with him. We started reaching out to every blogger we could find that was talking about home maintenance and caring for your home and stuff like that. And instead of going after like the top 10, we would find the top 30, throw out the top 10, and only focus on those second and third tier ones because they're going to say yes. And it was so much easier to engage with them and so much cheaper. But so Brightness ended up exiting Angie's list. It was not, uh, we, we thought it had incredible potential. We thought it was a really great fit. And, you know, ultimately there were quite a bit of complications regarding that acquisition, on, you know, regarding the sale, regarding the integration and a lot of other things that was really unfortunate, but it was a great experience and I, and I wouldn't trade it. The, the coolest thing that I thought about Brightness was this idea of, and you see it more and more now, where you sort of create a home profile and then you guys were able to accumulate critical mass of people's home profiles and then consistently produce content and vendor relationships totally. and all of that that were, that were connected to that. And people were uniquely sort of interested in, in offloading that information. And, and that's, it's sort of yeah. one of those things that takes up space in your mind and you're like, God, I could really use a list of all of the things that are in my house. And uh, the, the uh, email reminders and notifications, yeah. I think that, I mean, that was definitely how I you know, stayed abreast of, you know, new content. And right. Stuff like and that. we get was, feedback on that. Like I've still gotten feedback on yeah. it now. I think to Luke's point, that was the one thing, the, the best feature we ever did was something um, John Fustel, who's my partner in a new venture created that was called the question widget. And it was an interactive, just this dinky little thing we made, but it was visually interactive and it was tit for tat. We weren't just gathering information and then locking weight in a black box. If we asked people a question, we'd spit back out some kind of valuable piece of information. And I think where we've, what I would have loved to have seen had I stayed along with the company after the acquisition was whoever in that sector cracks the kind of car facts for the home is going to crush it because the second I know that you have a washing machine and I know the brand, GE was all over us to try to determine okay, that's a 10-year-old washing machine. That customer is going to be up for a washing machine. Like every kind of triggerable moment that is critical to those vendors or third parties or home sales or anything like that, you know, the Zillas of the world, it's so easy to capture that stuff and it's so easy to tease it out once you get them to engage. Especially mobile. Yeah, totally. And the You second can walk around your house with a phone man, and start clipping pictures and, yeah. and logging them into an app. And this is the alarm system I have. This is the dishwasher I have. This is the disposal I have. This is the... Well, that was probably also your... You know, Luke was an advisor on Brightness too. One of the best pieces of feedback is who the heck is going to drag their laptop through the living room? Like, you need... This isn't one of those things that I'm saying go mobile for mobile's sake. This is go mobile because it's practical and it's the easiest way to get information into the system. So... That's uh, advice I think I wish we would have heeded earlier on. And and you had local investors and? Yeah, so we had, we started off, they were mostly, so a contingent of West Coast, Techstars actually took the lead 
even though we didn't go to the incubator, and that was mostly via David Cohen, he hooked us well, up. We had already with, done 500 startups, too. Yeah. So um, that was an interesting question. Like, David's like, you got the choice between Techstars and 500. Um, and we knew we were going to get the benefit because we were local to Techstars that we felt getting out of our own backyard might might be a good experience for us. I think the downside is it's very, very easy to get caught up in that echo chamber in Silicon Valley, which is tech for tech's sake. And I am so glad we chose to ultimately locate in Denver because I do think it's easier to keep your finger on the pulse of kind of what, I, I can't, I'm not saying real America, but like what most people are, are like how they're wired than, than it is in Silicon Valley. I think that's a real challenge. So I'm glad we started in Denver. Tell us about this new project you have going. So in order, like anybody who worked at Brightness, and this is something I've done for pretty much most of my professional career, I like people who work for me to do something philanthropic and something entrepreneurial because smart people are going to cheat and I like them to cheat under my own roof and the philanthropic stuff is kind of good for everyone's soul. So if they're not doing it actively, I'm making sure the business has something of a do well by doing good component to it. And that's been true. I mean, even in the bar in this neighborhood, Matchbox, from day one, it has been free for nonprofits to have their events there. One, because I like to support the nonprofit community, but from a purely selfish standpoint, so many people that have discovered Matchbox is as a result of a nonprofit event that was done there because they didn't have an alternative of another space. So that's really worked out. So John Fustel, the person that I'm partnered with now, he was my lead developer at Brightnest. The project that he actually presented to get into Brightnest was this kind of hacked together, glorified inventory management system for artists and his mom's an oil painter out of Colorado Springs. So I kind of dismissed it. It was good flexing of like his coding ability, but I was like, this is too small a niche and it's never going to scale. So with Brightnest, we had investors, a bunch of people who we felt beholden to, we weren't going to ever be able to control kind of our pricing or our ultimate strategy. Um, our investors were great and supportive, but like ultimately they had a different outcome in mind. Um, and with Artwork Archive, which is the name of the company, it is basically an online resource for artists that help them get organized, save time, and manage their career with confidence. So artists do not necessarily gravitate to it. Like the, the left brain, right brain thing is a, is a conflict. So organization and that those types of skills don't come naturally all the time. I love unsexy. Like cool fades, useful is forever. So for me, if I can find something that is useful. Utility is better than content too. Yeah, yeah. I just, everyone wants to be the next online gallery and all this stuff. John's idea was to make it easier for these guys to make a living doing what they loved. So everything unsexy about the art world, we focus on. Like one-button gallery labels and inventory reports, things that help artists look more professional, tracking sales, who you sold to when. And the thing I love about it is it's entirely bootstrapped. I have all the experience from what I took from Brightnest on the content side to be able to leverage content for growth. We have a 95% retention ratio rate in over in the five years we've been in existence. It's a SaaS product, so it's a monthly subscription. And the best part is we get to price it however we want so it's accessible to artists of any age and any stage. We've got a collector and an organization component to it too. So for large organizations like Neiman Marcus is one of our customers, can organize tens of thousands of work all across their branches, and that's a little different pricing structure, as are the 
products for the collectors. But from an artist side, like that's what, like that's our jam. I get to work with crazy creative people every single day that are just putting amazing things out there. And it is, I have never been in a, with Brightnest, it was a situation where we never really achieved product market fit. A lot of people liked it, but we were always trying to struggle to create something that served their need. And I think we struggled, but we were really good at marketing. With Artwork Archive, we've got a product that I'm not joking, we get multiple love notes every day from our artists or collectors, and it feels amazing. And it's now grown to a product that, instead of it being a hobby for John, to a company that now has thousands and thousands of artists using it around the world in 50 different countries on you know multiple continents, which is super cool. It's really yeah. cool. And are there a lot of, like, I would imagine there's a lot of tangential sort of businesses off of that, like insurance companies could plug into that in the future. Totally. Transportation, um, art packaging and shipping. I mean, I would imagine there's a lot of that. It's, and this is, so we just recently flicked the switch to kind of doing outreach to those very professionals, art consultants that like, if you're an art consultant and you're guiding, you know, multiple collectors and having to manage their collection, everyone was doing it with card catalogs and spreadsheets. And our next closest competitor on the collector and organization side is close, is well over 10x our price. So it's a risk because with price, there's a perception of value. So, I mean, we can spend days talking about pricing theory. And even though our competitors are getting away with charging $100 a month to an individual collector to manage his or her own collection, it's not something we feel good about. So our most expensive collector product is $14 a month. And I, I believe, I, I think a lot of people could make a good argument that it is a mistake, but it's working for us now. We feel really good about it now, and we continue to grow. Now, the other side of that is you're growing because you're so cheap, but we're putting out a product that's as good or better than the vast majority of our collectors. And these professionals, just like you said, we get calls from lawyers, from consultants, from art logistics companies. Appraisers. From appraisers, RFID companies, like all these things, museums. And, you know, but it's, so it's been, this has been one of the most fun times I've ever had in, in a startup. The issue that comes with having revenue drive kind of your ability to hire and growth is when you don't take that outside capital, you have to be really thoughtful. Like there's no fudge room. So, it's much harder for us to throw 10K at a bunch of different experiments, seeing which one fits, and then just turning a fire hose on it. We've got to be really, we, we penny pinch with everything we do. And when we find a bucket, we're willing to throw resources at it, but it's tougher. I mean, right now, there's only three full-time people, and then a lot of the rest of it's being picked up consulting-wise or part-time or interns, et cetera. So we're small, but it's fun as hell. It's cool. Very cool. Is the primary customer for that the artist, or are you kind of creating a marketplace here? Ultimately? I would say the artist is definitely, like we have, if you look at our user makeup right now, we're probably 70% artists and then 30% collector and organizations, but we really just started talking about the collector and organization product in the last year and a half because we wanted to make sure it was dialed, and that is hands down our fastest growing sector just because, you know, we may eventually kind of pair the two together because obviously artists are looking to get in touch with collectors and, and vice versa. But our main focus is just providing a really good resource for both. The art world 
tends to be fairly antiquated in the technolo- like from a technological standpoint. So most of the stuff that's put out there has been there for ages. It's really, there's, I'm not, I don't want to make this too broad of a statement, but there is a tendency for kind of elitism in the art world, and it seems unapproachable to people. We're really trying to, you know, make this approachable, make it accessible, and get a lot more people involved in it. So, you know, I think one of the bigger changes you will see this year is us starting to be putting out a lot more content related specifically to getting younger collectors involved in the art world, emerging collectors, and and doing stories on that because there's a pretty big growth spurt right now going on, and we want to do everything we can to help kind of fuel that. Is your plan to do like to remain 100% bootstrapped? Is that the goal? Yeah, it is. We've we've gotten some interesting offers as of late that have kind of perked us up. But whereas with Brightnest, our intention, our sole intention was create something that we can exit with. This, our sole intention is to create a lifestyle business for ourselves and the people that work for and with us. And we're having a great time doing it. Um, I'm I've been really lucky in that some of the bar related stuff has worked out and that takes a little pressure off. Like, I don't feel an ax on my neck. And, and that's probably for better or for worse. I mean, there's, there's good and bad to that. When I think when you have people breathing down your neck and you have VCs or investors and all these people kind of like, you know, churn it, churn it, churn it, I think you maybe, I don't know if you bleed a little heavier than, than you do when it's kind of a lifestyle and, or a bootstrapped business. But like, what drives us is not trying to put money in everyone else's pockets. What drives us is, trying to have the best product in the space and really kind of fulfilling our mission of helping these people make a living doing what they love. So one of the main things that I wanted to talk with you about is that sort of compare and contrast between having a venture back startup, taking the sort of right out of central casting, 500 startups, Techstars fund, kind of how you would read about doing it and the benefits of that. And then alternatively, this attempt at bootstrapping, not taking venture money, although knowing you easily could if that was what you wanted to do. Maybe for the listeners, I think the most interesting thing that they could take from this would be to understand, now that you're mature with both of those, what the puts and takes are for sure. those two. So I'm, I'm going to answer the latter part first regarding bootstrapping. And I want to put a huge disclaimer on it that I don't think I would look at things the same way had I not had the benefit of that incubator experience and had the benefit of having a startup, whether it was successful or failed, under my belt. So I think my lenses might be a little different on the bootstrapping situation. The thing I like the most about bootstrapping is the total unadulterated control to do what we want. The thing that scares me the most is I don't have that that round table of people that I can consult that are industry experts that have a vested interest in seeing you succeed because they have skin in the game. I think two of the biggest advantages with taking capital, and not dumb money, you always hear like smart money versus dumb money. Alan and I, when we first started pitching, we would say to the investors right out of the gate, we're not just looking for a check. It was a good enough idea that we had the luxury of choice, at least initially. So when we were having these conversations, we really were trying to seek out people that were a little more strategic. Now, we got a little bit more desperate as time got on and, and a lot less choosy. Um, so we, I mean, sometimes I remember sitting down with a guy in New York 
it was a warm intro from David Cohen, and he just wrote us a check for a hundred grand. He had no significant experience in the space, but it was wonderful for us to just get that check without having to do a ton of hustle. Um, I think, or give him a board seat, or give or him anything. a board seat. So I, I think on the the getting money and how things are different and the puts and takes. I think if you stack the deck, if you've got a good idea that you have the luxury of choice, I think there is some amazing things that can come out of it. And you know, I'm saying this because Luke is in the room, but had I taken enough advantage of Luke's feedback in regards to getting a banker for the sale or doing some things, it, had I leaned on that advice as much as I should have, we would have had a different outcome. So. I think you have to be smart in who you select. You have to engage them and milk them for everything they're worth. And you can get people solely for connect. Like Dave McClure wasn't sitting giving me advice about how to build a better home maintenance product. But any door we knocked on, he would get open for us if we wanted. So I think the power of that, that comes from being able to drop someone's name that's influential. David Cohen, for us, was one of the most thoughtful advisors. He would listen when shit was on fire, he didn't put that additional pressure on it. He instead helped us locate kind of paths out of the, the fire. So there was a lot of good that came with raising money. The second big advantage, or maybe the first big advantage, biggest advantage, is you get to try shit fast. Whereas if you're bootstrapping, if you're going to make a bet, it has to be so calculated because the cost is so significant if you lose. Whereas with a startup, I'm not saying light the money on fire. Alan and I were old Midwestern guys, you know, that are prudent as hell. But man, when you have the ability to deploy cash and experiment with which marketing or user growth tactic is going to work, you figure stuff out so much faster. And that is a massive advantage. So in the case where your goal is to scare quickly and it's a consumer internet play, I think raising money has huge advantages. I think when you talk about some B2B stuff and things like that, I mean, we're seeing it right now with Brandfolder. Yeah, they raised some money, but what's driving their growth in the enterprise is putting together one of the best sales teams I've ever seen. And it's it's insane what they've done. I mean, I, and that is that was going to happen with or without the dollars. So yeah, I mean, I but think- But you, you know, but but I would say one of the advantages to having venture money is hiring. Oh yeah. because. For twofold. Obviously, you have the ability to spend money on talent, sure. which is extremely difficult when you're bootstrapping. It's very hard to, to, to say, oh, you know what? I'll just get some scrappy young person versus sure. getting a real veteran. Not only does it give you the flow to be able to actually pay people a, a, a legitimate salary, which they should be able to claim right. at, at once they have some level of experience, but it also... It's your schmuck insurance on other people have a stake in the game, and there will probably be some kind of an exit here because I've got a couple venture capital guys on Sand Hill Road that will make this work right. out somehow, some way. Well, and then and if and if it's just you and you know, yeah. it's tough. Well, so it's tough to hire well in the best of situations. Having cash, as you said, is schmuck, in, schmuck insurance. Equity isn't the same dangle as it was. Like, it's not the same carrot as it was because people have gotten more realistic about the actual difficulty required to have an exit that's going to materially impact anybody that was part of that. I mean, it is a rare exception 
the, you know, the successful startup that exits and gets everyone paid out is a rare exception. So having that money to deploy initially, and I know it's cliche as hell, everyone says it, but hiring is the most important thing to the success of your startup. And I have always had a ton of luck with getting good people on the on on board early. And every time I've tried to skimp, and this is true for construction projects and stuff like that, like anytime I try to skimp, I get bit in the ass. Every time. I mean, it's you happened to me. You get what you pay for. To- and it's it could not be more true. When you try to skimp on any real estate or construction stuff, all you're doing, you're opening yourself up to suits, you're opening yourself up to delays, and every day you're not open is an extra day you're paying for that piece of land and an extra day you're not ringing in you know, transactions. The other part about it that I find, and you and I talked about this once, Danny, is you also, if you surround yourself with sort of like the cheapest viable person <laughs> or the cheapest viable SaaS products to support your business or the cheapest viable office space, you, you have to pick your battles on those. And nobody wants you to, to spend money so that you have the fanciest everything. Right. And we've, we all have extremely long lists of people who went out and paid for the most expensive everything. Yeah. There are a lot of headstones laying around for people who've made that decision. But if, you'd, if you aren't going best in class on a few of those things, and they can be different things, hardware, they could be people, they could be locations, they could be you know, even employee health insurance. But if you just, if you go for the cheapest, vi- it, it creates a culture of sort of like, this is the garage sale of yeah. startups, <laughs> which is a tough thing. And that's one of the things that I always think is, if you look at people that have successful bootstrapped, they're usually veterans. Yeah. Well, I think there's also a, a difference between not, not, being not, cheap. Not, not military veterans. No, no, but no. I think people... <laughs> People who have uh, had who it, figured it out, who figured it out before. Um, but there's a difference between being cheap and being lean. Like I think you can be lean and and you know cost conscious. But I, I, like I just had a meeting with um, my my partners in the Matchbox, and you know we were talking about kind of this family of bars that's developed out of that, like Seven Fifteen and the Squire, like. We're, and we were talking about how so easy. So let's let's introduce that first because that's the last topic I want to discuss with you, which is okay. So you have a lot of these in your in your in your other world. You have these series of local businesses that you also start and run. Most of them are bars. Are all of them bars? I I, I think food spoils liquors forever. So I try to avoid. I right. sold the one that had food last year. Okay. I just And so maybe you give the listeners just a, a one minute overview of what that is. Um, okay. So a couple years back was sitting with a buddy of mine who had been looking for a space. Um, I have liked to drink a lot. A space for a bar. A, a space for a bar. Um, been into cocktails for a long time and always have been kind of obsessive about just customer service and things like that. So we, I was driving by a place that happened to have been on fire in Rhino talked to the the fire chief. He told me who the owner of the building was and told the owner that if he put a roof and a floor on it, that we'd create it. That's why a lot of people don't know Matchbox is called Matchbox because it was a small, intimate space that caught on fire. And the walls are not black because we like the color black. They're black because it was on fire, literally on fire. So um, cool space. Ended up getting really lucky making a bet on a neighborhood that a lot of people said no one would go to. Um, and it, it ended up turning around. So, you know, it started off as 
when I was 25, I had this kind of list of like stuff I wanted to do. And, you know, I was always really oh, into God, kind of here we go. No, I, no, it was the bar. The <laughs> bar thing was working out great, Justin. Yeah, I'm sorry. Good job. The bar, th- the bar thing was one of the the things. So, and it's ended up. It's it's been a lot of fun. I've got another one opening up in Rhino. If I can, Luke said, real estate mogul. I am hands down the most inept construction manager of all time. Like I can do stuff, but it's on a very limited scale. And as a result of going making some of the decisions we made, we're now like a year delayed on a project. But that'll be opening up with Lisa Vitavelli, my partner in Matchbox, and Sean Kenyon, who does Williams and Graham and Occidental and stuff like that. And I drank a little too much in November of last year and ended up buying a barber shop and coffee shop that I'm going to turn into a a bar. Um, Which one's that? It's called Bellwether, and it's on East Colfax. Tons of style in the place. The guys who owned it before did a really wonderful job on it. Um, But I think there's a lot of different businesses kind of going on in it, and it needs a little editing. And there was just some back office stuff that that probably could have been tended to a little differently. So um, I really like that neighborhood over there, and I think East Colfax is going to continue to kind of grow. And uh, what's going on with the place by Mile High Stadium? I sold that. that. So that that. was Fieldhouse. Um, That was more... I am attracted like a moth to a flame to terrible situations. And I will never forget that call because it was like, hey, someone just got shot on this building. It used to be a whorehouse, a meth lab. They're selling crack out of it right now. And at the little kiosk, you can get heroin with your burrito. Um, but It's also sh- an awesome place to park your car. To right, right. Where but is this? This Where? was on uh, Federal, 1630 Federal. But they're going to shut... Right by my house. That's why I... Uh, yeah, they're going like, to shut familiar. everything down um, because of a nuisance violation. And the city's wondering if you guys can work together to kind of resurrect it, similar to kind of what you guys did on the Rhino Project. So we went there, chief of police, city attorney, and all. And I'm like, I know I'm not going to be able to say no to this. And Lisa had actually turned me on to the idea. It was her friend, Dave Benlolo, who who had found the space initially. And then Lisa brought me in. And I was a total sucker. Like, I, it had these huge wooden beams. And, and But um, for me, it was more... I So I of, can't park there anymore for Bronco. No, <laughs> you can ask Lisa. I had agreed to get <laughs> it's involved. It's a tough, tough way to find that <laughs> out. I was excited more about the turnaround on that. And then I sold that the mid year last year and that worked that was a that ended up working out really well so before we wrap up with your sort of extremely diverse sort of background what do you see happening in denver and boulder that's most interesting to you outside of neighborhood gentrification and opportunistic stuff there god it's so much easier to answer the the contrary like i think this food mall thing needs to get reined in because we're going to see more and more of it um, I think some of the people have done a really good job executing on that stuff, but it's tough. Um, and and watching the prices increase in Rhino and the impact some of this stuff is having on it. I mean, I've always tried to follow artists in cities I've lived in because I love when those communities mesh. I don't love when the community grows to a point where it pushes out the artists. Um, so, is there anywhere though? Like my brother lives in West Oakland, and that's. Oh, now that's happened. Major that's now yeah. happened there. But that is, is the that path. not is that avoidable? I'm not. In, I'm not entirely sure that's ever been. No, no, and it's always been the. I mean, trend. you try I to mean, avoid those places. Chicago, that's I don't know that same. that's avoidable. Yeah, I don't know. I I think from a food and bar standpoint, I think what's going to be really interesting is you've got Death and Company, one of the most famous kind of cocktail bars. Like it's an iconic cocktail bar in New York. With those guys coming into that boutique hotel, 
I think it's going to kind of force everyone to raise their cocktail game a little bit. The unfortunate side effect that I'm already seeing, I think, is I don't believe the cocktail scene should ever be... um, uh, I I think it needs to be accessible. Just, you know, right now, there is this level of uh, exclusivity or level of, you know, there isn't the customer service you see in the neighborhood bar that you love to go to. You don't always see that. I think some people have done a really good job at that. And I think those cocktail bars that choose to go that route and, and focus on putting really good drinks out but with a neighborhood bar kind of feel, I think you're going to do well and survive. But like when Death and Company drops, you watch every cocktail bar in town is going to bump up their prices and it's going to be a little bit more exclusive, I think. So it'll be great because it's going to raise everyone's game. It's not going to be great from a pocketbook standpoint or accessibility standpoint. So um, I think it's awesome that we've got these famous people from coasts coming in to elevate the food and drink scene. But I think um, some of it might be a little too racy for for Denver right now. And I would love to see what I'm hoping happens is I'm hoping it gives birth to a great kind of hole in the wall, great bang for the buck thing. Because people remembering like this is a customer service industry. People go there to have fun. They go there to learn. And you can have kind of an experiential, um, you know, situation without all the pomp and circumstance and high dollar stuff. So I hope that like this trend of high price, super fancy, kind of unapproachable gives birth to this is just really good, clean food and an affordable price. Like I, I, I'm really hoping to see that because it's happened in a lot of cities. You know, San Francisco went uber fancy and then the bars that started to get really popular are those that are most approachable and, and really cater to the neighborhood around them. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, it was this fun. It's a very diverse collection of topics that we've discussed today. <laughs> I think this will be interesting for the audience. Awesome. Thanks cool. for coming on. Thanks for the time. You bet. Thanks for listening to Turnpikers, recorded at Postmodern Company in downtown Denver. More information on this show is available at turnpikers.com and at turnpikers on Twitter. Reach out with questions and recommend future guests.